you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the 50th Psalm, Psalm 50. That means we're a fourth of the way through of the book of Psalms after tonight. Psalm 50 was written by one whose name is Asaph. Asaph is, uh, if you can remember, Psalms is divided into five different books. If you got one of these that I handed out, uh, it's got that on there, the division of books. Psalm 1 through 41 is the first book. Psalm 42 all the way down through 72 is the second book. The third book is 73 through 89. The fourth book is 90 through 106. And then you got 107 through 150. That is the fifth book of the Psalms. So this second book is the only time we have Asaph as a writer, and he is a lead singer as far as in David's choir. Uh, as he led the singing, he was the lead singer. But right here is the first time he has a psalm recorded. You get into the third book, he's got a lot more psalms recorded there. And uh, actually from Psalm 73 through Psalm 83, all were written by Asaph as far as the human writer. Now we know the Word of God is uh, inspired by the Spirit of God, and ultimately what we have is God's Word. But God used human means to record His Word. Here is Asaph's psalm, as far as the first one, that has been written. What this deals with, this psalm deals with the issues of the heart. It talks about the heart. Therefore, it's very relevant for us today as we look at this psalm because out of the heart flow the what? Do you remember what, what the Word of God says? Out of the heart flow the issues of life, the source of life, out of the heart comes the issues of life. Now when you think about that, it's out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can tell a person, uh, you can tell pretty much where a person's at if you listen to them long enough, speak to them long enough, you're hanging around with them long enough, you can tell if they're a godly person or an ungodly person. All because of what flows out of the mouth, which comes from the heart. I want you to look at a few passages of Scripture, what our Lord said concerning the heart. And we look at these passages of Scripture before we get into Psalm 50. So put your finger there in Psalm 50 and look over in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 and down in verse 34. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, as our Lord is speaking, and he's speaking to those Pharisees, and he calls them, O generation of vipers, you bunch of poisonous snakes. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, brings forth good things. An evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. Look over in chapter 15 and down in verse 19. Matthew chapter 15 and down in verse 19. There we read, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashing hands defiles not a man. I have talked to people who have committed some heinous sins, some bad sins. And they would use the excuse, well, that wasn't really me. Well, you know, according to the Word of God, it's out of the heart proceeds these bad sins. Therefore, it is them that does them. 
If you do evil, it's because of the evil that's in your heart. The Word of God tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. You know what? We cannot even know the depths of the deceptiveness of our own hearts. But God knows. Listen to what it says over in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 Samuel the 16th chapter, and down in verse 17... First Samuel 16 and verse 17, the Word of God says, oh, I've got the wrong one. I'll give it to you in jest. When they were looking for the king to replace Saul, you remember how they called David's brothers up before Samuel. And boy, they thought the bigger ones, the better looking ones, they were the ones. Chapter 7, no, verse 7, 15, 16, 7. How did I get so far off? First Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For the Lord looks on the outward, not on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We look with our eyes and we see the outward person. But what God sees when he looks at you and I, he sees your heart. He sees what's on the inside. You know what? We can hide that from men. But you can't hide that from God. In Matthew chapter 6, and down in verse 7. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. Oh, I done got another one. I must have twisted my verses. 27. Matthew 6 verse 27. No, it's 527. I've just got my chapters and verses mixed up. Listen to what the Word of God says. What Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said of them of old time, You shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. You see, the Lord is not looking just at the outward appearance. He sees the inward intent, the motives, the thoughts of the heart. What you're thinking in your mind, the Lord knows what's going on in your mind, in your thinker. He goes on to say, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish. And not that the whole body should be cast into hell. And if your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for you that one of thy members should perish. And not that the whole body should be cast into hell. What the Word of God is teaching us here, it is that the Lord is looking at the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. The Word of God tells us that God sees your innermost thoughts. He says in Mark chapter 7 and down in verse 6, Jesus answered the Pharisees and scribes and said unto them, 
Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Sunday morning, when we worship, we gather together. You know what? People can sing. They can look like they're worshiping the Lord, but their hearts can be very far from the Lord. You can't see that. You can fool somebody else. But the Lord sees the heart. He sees if you're serious in your worships. Where is your heart when you worship? We can put on a good outward appearance. We may sound great. You may look great and you might, might smell good. The temperature might just be right. Everything seems perfect. But you know what? If your heart is far from him... That's the main thing. So what we find in Psalms 50 is talking about the issues of the heart. As God looks, He sees the intents of the heart. He knows if your heart is focused upon Him to worship Him. We can go through the motions. We can go through rituals. We can go through the words of a song. We can even mumble the words of the song. We can sing the words of a song. We can have it memorized and all we do is just spit it out. But you know what? It doesn't mean anything if it's not coming from the heart. And that's what God is dealing with here. I ask the question very simply as we get into Psalm 50. How often are our hearts far from Him? It's a tough question, and it's one only you as an individual can answer. But how often, when we come together to worship, how often are our hearts far from Him? I do believe worship ought to be a consistent way of life, not just when we gather together as a body of believers, but I believe our whole life ought to be lived in worship. How often, as we go through life, have our hearts drifted away from Him? I want you to look in Psalm 50. I want you to notice something right off the bat before we go to verse 1. In verse 7, the Word of God says, Hear, O my people. So the psalm is addressed to the Jewish people, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. It's directed toward a particular people. If you remember last Wednesday night, we looked at Psalm 49. Verse 1 says, Hear this, all ye people. Give ear all you inhabitants of the world. In other words, Psalm 49 was directed toward every individual in this world. But Psalm 50 is directed toward God's chosen people. And he's directing this message toward them. And what this psalm, it's a call of God to judgment. Kind of goes hand in hand with where we were at a little bit this past Sunday morning over in the book of Jude. I want you to notice the first six verses. In verse 1 in Psalm 50, the Word of God says, The mighty God, even the Lord. Now as you look at your Bible, I want you to notice those words because those words all have meaning. The mighty is the word El. It's the shortened name of God as the one who is mighty or strong. And then it says, God. There is El, which is mighty. Then there's God, which is Elohim. 
Elohim is God as creator. Then it says, even the Lord, and Lord's all capital letters, and this is one that's not used often, this title of God is not used often in this second book of the Psalms. It is Yahweh, or the covenant-keeping God. In other words, this psalm starts out as El Elohim Yahweh. It's kind of a unique form of names. The only other time it's used in Scripture like that is over in Joshua chapter 22 and verse 22. The interesting thing about that is because that talks about judgment also. So here we see it's a call to judgment right off the bat. It says, He has spoken. He has called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. And out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. God is manifested. His glory has shined out of Zion, which is Jerusalem. Now, he's saying this in this particular area. And this judgment is coming to this particular area because this is where his people are and this is where his people have sinned against him. The word of God goes on to say, Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. Let's pause there for a moment. He is simply saying in judgment there's not going to be silence. Right now in our day and time, in a sense we see our nation being judged. But it's heading for the great day of judgment. Right now is still a period of grace. We live in a time of grace, therefore there is silence. But when God's judgment comes... There is not going to be silence. Notice the description of when God comes in judgment. It's kind of reminiscent of when God came down at Mount Sinai when he met Moses. It says, A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. You remember what it was like? As the children of Israel met God at Mount Sinai, Moses went up. And you remember how Hebrews describes Moses, said he did exceedingly fear. He was in great awe. He was scared. He was shaking, literally, is what the Word of God is telling us. Here is a picture of God coming down in judgment. You can find that reference over in Deuteronomy chapter 4 in verse 26. And so what he does, the Word of God describes this judgment scene. It's kind of like a courtroom scenario. And he gives the jury, he gives the defendants, and he gives the judge. I want you to notice first off the jury. In verse 4 he says, I shall, He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. In other words, it's the same words that's used over in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He's calling the heavens and the earth to be a witness. And then I want you to notice what the Word of God says. That He may judge His people. It is God who is the judge. He is the righteous judge. It's heaven and earth that is the jury. 
Now I want you to notice the ones on trial in verse 5. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. These are God's people who came and said they were in covenant with God. They're the ones on trial. In verse 6, it emphasizes who that judge is. Notice he says, And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. You know what? There's one we have to give an answer to, and that is he who is judge of all the earth. That is God himself. And he is a righteous God. And he's going to judge in righteousness. You remember what it says over in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17? And judgment must begin first at the house of God. And if it begins with us, where are those that are unbelieving? Where are they going to stand? Here is a picture of God's judgment. It is a call for God to judge. And then it ends in verse 6 with that little word, Selah. Now you remember what Selah means. It's got more than one meaning. It can mean amen, or so let it be. Or what do you think about that? Ponder that. You know what? If we ponder the judgment of God and the judgment is coming, that sure will help us walk straight. We need to ponder the judgment of God. Selah. And then he pronounces judgment upon two different defendants. There are two different groups here that he identifies, and the first group is found in verses 7 through 15. This first group is the group that are the Jews that are a bunch of formalists. In other words, they've got to do things exactly right. And notice it says, it gives the credentials of the judge in verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, even your God. The judge is about to present his case. He is the one who is God, even their God, because they're claiming the covenant. He says, hear, and I will speak, and I'm going to testify against you. So here is the judge. He is speaking. And notice what he does in verse 8. He gives them credit for what they did. God is a righteous judge. And what do they do in verse 8? I will not reprove you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings to have been continually before me. In other words, they were continually practicing their sacrifices and their burnt offerings as they were instructed to do in the Old Testament, in the books of the law. They were doing this right as far as the formality of it. So he gives them credit for doing what he told them to do. But he finds fault in how they're doing it. You know what? You can do things, but you can do them for the wrong motive. You can do things and your heart not be in it. Notice what the Word of God goes on to say in verse 9 through 13. God says, I will take no bullock out of your house, nor he goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. 
I know all the fowls of the mountain, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Here's God. Notice He owns everything. Every beast of the forest, every cattle on every hill, every bird in the mountains, every wild beast in the field, they all belong to God. And you know what? God is self-dependent. If He was hungry, He wouldn't tell you. He sure wouldn't tell me. Here, I want you to notice... The fault lies with how they were presenting their sacrifices. They're basically thinking they're doing God a privilege. They're giving of their flock. They're giving of their bullocks. They're giving of their cattle to God. You know what? All that belongs to God anyway. If you give to the Lord... You're simply given a portion back of what He's made you a steward of. Everything that you've got in this life has been given to you by God. God has blessed you with what you got. You are called to be good stewards with what you own. Here, you give back a portion. You know what? It all belongs to God anyway. Here it is. I want you to notice He gives them instruction in what they should do. Offer unto God thanksgiving. Pay your vows unto the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. The Israelites had come to a point in their worship, it had become so rote, such an everyday thing. It had become just a matter of practice, and they kept doing it over and over. And it's as if they did God a favor for showing up on the Sabbath. It's kind of like today. Some people think they do God a favor by showing up on Sunday morning. Well, where are they when we assemble together through other parts of the week? Some people think they're doing God a favor by dropping some money in the box we've got back in the back. Some people think they're doing God a favor by singing a song. The problem is their heart is far from them. Because he gives the antidote, and notice what the antidote to this situation is. Here's how you solve the situation, he's basically saying. He says in verse 14, offer unto God thanksgiving. If you offer thanks unto God, you give thanks unto God, where does the thanks come from? It comes from the heart. So the problem is the heart problem. You know what, when we give thanks unto the Lord, if we really are giving thanks to the Lord, it's coming from the heart, and that's what God desires. He desires thanksgiving that's coming from the heart. And pay your vows unto the Most High. If you make a vow, now you know what? Be careful how you make vows. There's only a couple of vows I can think you, you make in our day and time. If you're not careful, you get into legalism. There's the marriage vow. Honor your vows. There is a vow, like if you were to join New Life Baptist Church or another church, You follow the Lord in baptism. You become a member. You become accountable to that body of believers and ultimately unto the Lord. You have made a vow that you're going to identify with Christ. You're going to live for Him. That's a serious thing. Ecclesiastes says, pay your vows when you make those vows. Where does a vow come from? If you're going to keep a vow, you know what? It comes from the heart. 
Therefore, thanksgiving comes from the heart. The vows come from the heart. But he doesn't stop right there because this commitment, notice what he says in verse 16 or verse 15. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God will deliver us. It is God who delivers us where we're in tight situations. When we've got problems, we call upon the name of the Lord and the word of God says he'll deliver When God delivers us, He pulls us out of the situation or gives us help through the situation. When God helps us and delivers us, the Word of God says, and you shall glorify me. In other words, we're going to make His name renowned. We're going to tell others about the great things that God has done for us. When God delivers us, we give Him the glory. We make Him known. So notice this. It's all coming from the heart. Here's the issue with the Israelites. Their heart was far from God. God tells them to give thanks. God tells them in verse 14, pay your vows. And then he tells them to glorify him when he delivers them. Here's the antidote to the formalism of just going through a ritual. Have there been times, be honest with me, I had somebody ask me this one time, And it's kind of ironic who asked me this. Somebody who's a delinquent church member that don't ever come to church. They said, Steve, are you just going through the motions? Are you just faking it? And you know what? You got to think about that. I want you to think about that. Are there times, sometimes when we come to church, we're just going through the motions? We got to check our motives. We got to check our heart. I'm kind of glad he asked me that. Personally, I think he's a hypocrite, but (laughs) regardless, we all need to check our hearts. Are we worshiping with all of our being? Are we giving him the glory who is worthy of all the praise? When we sing, are we singing because we're singing unto him? I'll give you an example. Brother Harry, who's passed away, who used to be a deacon here, He did not want to pray when he first joined the church as far as out in public. He was terrified to speak in public. I talked with Brother Harry and I told him, I said, you know what? When you pray, you're more concerned about people than you are about who you're praying to. Now you think about that, that puts prayer in perspective. Who do we fear more, God or man? It's about a week or two later, Brother Harry come up to me and says, Brother Steve, if you need me to pray, I'll pray. And you know what? He prayed some of the most precious, humblest prayers when he prayed. It was sincere right from the heart. What I'm simply saying, we need to be sincere with God. When we come to worship him, he's looking at your heart. He knows what's going on in your mind. He knows if you're going 50 different directions, if you're thinking about where you're going to eat when you leave here or getting ice cream after you leave here. Ooh, did I say ice cream? You know, something like, you know, your, your mind's going somewhere else instead of this way. God knows our hearts. When you worship God, when you get serious and you seriously worship God, What's going to happen in your life, true worship is going to humble you before God. We humble ourselves before Him. 
I want you to notice the second group that he addresses here, that he's got in this courtroom. The first group is the formalist, those who are just going through the rituals, going through the motions. The second group, you can find it in verses 16 through 21. These are the hypocrites. He calls them the wicked. Notice he says in verse 16, But unto the wicked God saith, What have you to do to declare my statutes, or that you should take my covenant in your mouth? Now, you know what? You could put this right on the pages of the New Testament with the Pharisees. The Pharisees often said, pretty much, you got to do what I say. But they wouldn't tell people to do what they do. Because they would say one thing, but they would do something else. Formalism is basically violating the first tablets of the Ten Commandments. Hypocrisy is basically violating the second part of the Ten Commandments. You find that in the context here as we're talking through it. He who denies God has no regard for his fellow man. And that's what we find in verse 16. So God calls him out. And he says, what do you do to declare my statutes? You're declaring my word and you're taking my covenant in your mouth. And then he says, seeing that you hate instruction or you hate discipline. He says, and you cast my words behind you. In other words, they speak the word. They tell others the word, but they don't do the word. As soon as they speak the word, they cast the word behind them. Well, that's for somebody else. That's for so-and-so. And they throw it off. They cast it off. They proclaim the law while they broke the law. There are many people who call themselves Christians in our day and time. They may even quote some scripture. But you know what? They break the law all the time. They don't have a heart to worship the Lord. They take the word of God in their mouth, but they cast it from them. They don't put it into practice. They profess. Like in our day and time, many people profess the gospel. They profess to know Jesus Christ and they live like the devil. You can't tell no difference from them and the world. They don't put into practice that which they have heard. It's kind of like James says, it's like looking at yourself in the mirror and walking away and forgetting what you saw. It's kind of like the preacher I remember saying one time, he went into a uh, um, coffee shop. And when he got coffee, he ate a cream cheese bagel. And there was another person eating a cream cheese bagel. When they left the coffee shop, the other person had cream cheese all over his mouth. He told him to go look in the mirror. He looked in the mirror, and you know what? He kept on walking with the cream cheese all over his mouth. That's the way we are with God's Word sometimes when people are. They'll hear the Word. They'll know what they need to do, but they'll just forget the Word. It's kind of like looking in the mirror and forgetting Here, you hate instruction. You hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. And then notice what the Word of God says. When you saw a thief, you saw somebody stealing something, then you consented with him. Or you went along with him. You didn't try to stop him. You just 
and let them go. You know what? It burns me up to see some of these big cities when they're breaking windows and stealing stuff in gangs and they don't do anything to punish them. That's just lawlessness. When you saw a thief, then you consented with him. And you've been partaker with adulterers. In other words, you know someone living in adultery, and you just continue on letting them live in adultery. You don't confront them, you don't say nothing about it. Or you're watching TV and you're watching the adultery junk, and you're condoning it. Now, they didn't have TVs back in that time. You know that in the Old Testament. But you get the gist of what he's saying. He says, when you give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit, in other words, you lie. You're deceitful. You tell not real bad lies, it's little white lies. Anybody ever heard the term little white lie? Has anybody ever told a little white lie? You know what a little white lie is? It's a lie before God. Same as a big white lie or a big yellow lie, whatever color you want to paint that lie. It's a lie, it's a lie, it's a sin, it's a sin. doesn't matter how little it is. When you sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. A lot of times in churches today, people become fruit inspectors. You remember what Jesus said? You shall know them by their fruit. How often I see other Christians looking for fruit at other people. You know what? We need to be looking at the fruit in our own lives. We need to be fruit inspectors of our own life and don't worry about somebody's fruit in their life. We need to be checking ourselves here. Here's the problem with these hypocrites. They're quick to point the fingers at others. But you see how many are pointing back at myself. I've got three shooting straight, straight back at me. I've got enough to answer before God than me pointing my finger at you. But now let me tell you, if you're in the wrong in something and I know you're in doing something wrong, I need to confront you. Same way with me. Same way with one another. We are called to encourage, as Brother Josh preached this past Sunday night, we're to edify. That means to build up. We're to encourage one another. That means even calling out the sin. Here we see their sin mentioned, which is there's three of them listed here that are in the latter part of the Ten Commandments. The Word of God says in verse 21, these things you've done. You've done these things. God's looking at your heart. He knows exactly what you've done. He says, you've done it. And I kept silent. You ever sinned and God was silent? You know what I mean? You sinned and you got by with it. Anybody ever done that? No, nobody's confessing tonight. Nobody, no volunteers. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and when you're quiet about it, notice what the Word of God says. You thought that I was altogether such as one of yourself. In other words, God's not punishing me for it, so you do it again. You get by with it again. Hmm. Maybe God is like me. Maybe that's why God is silent. He's not punishing me. 
They assumed God was like them. That was the problem. Listen to what it says over in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a little verse over there. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and down in verse 11. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. In other words, because you're not punished quickly, you get caught up in the way of evil and you continue to do that sin. Sin is like, often I've used the illustration of how you can hold your hands together and if you put a rope around my hands just one time, I can pull it loose. You put it around a couple times and it gets a little bit harder, I might get a little rope burned. You put it around there seven or eight times, you know what, you've got me. That's the same way sin does. You sin once, you can stop. You sin twice, it's a little bit more difficult. You start getting caught up in sin, and pretty soon sin's got you caught up. And you become bound to that way of life and that sinfulness because punishment does not come quickly. Because God is silent, you're assuming God's just like you. In other words, He really don't care if you do that or not. That's so wrong. Don't ever think a holy God is just like you. Don't be using such statements like the man upstairs. That burns me up. Listen to that. Have you ever heard somebody describe God as the man upstairs? Let me tell you, he's holy, perfect in all his ways. Jesus Christ did become flesh. He became man. But let me tell you something. You ain't just like Jesus Christ. He is holy. He's pure. He's fulfilled the law for us. He took our place. It's blasphemy to think God is just like us. Some people think, well, he really must not care if I miss maybe Sunday night or Wednesday night. He really don't care if, you know... I miss some Sunday mornings. Some people think this way. Does God not care if we forsake the assembling of ourselves? Listen to what the Word of God says. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves. Does that mean it's okay to miss just every now and then? We can miss a Sunday. We can miss a Sunday night. We can miss Wednesday. Well, if God don't care, what did He put? Forsake not the assembling of yourself. We've got to stick with the Word of God. Stick with the Word of God. You cannot go wrong. Some people say, I remember confronting a young couple that were shacking up together or living together. They weren't married. A young girl said to me, Well, God knows my heart. He knows our heart. He knows we really love each other. I'm going like, Yes, He knows your heart. And He knows it's sinful and that you're living in sin. You know what? People are so trying to rationalize God and His Word to fit their mold, they're making God into be someone He is not, to be like them. Here's what they're doing. God says, these things you've done, I kept silent. You thought I was altogether such a one as yourself, but I'm going to reprove you. And set them in order before your eyes. God says he's going to reprove them. 
Now notice here, God's given them a warning. And God gives a very harsh warning in verse 22. He says, Now consider this, yet you that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Can you imagine? This goes back to like Psalm 2. God tearing you in pieces? I don't want to go there. I pray you don't either. It's a warning from God. But notice verse 23. Verse 23 is an answer, the first part of it, to verses 7 through 15, the formalism. Whoso offers praise glorifies me. In other words, if you praise, you give him praise from the heart, you're going to glorify him. That gets rid of the formalism. And then he says, And to him that orders his conversation aright, I will show the salvation of God. That's the answer to verses 16 through 21. I answer to the hypocrisy. You order your life aright, that then God will show you his way, his salvation, his deliverance. This is a psalm speaking about God's judgment. You know what? It was relevant way back in the Old Testament. It was relevant for Asaph, one of David's singers. David lived roughly around 900 B.C. It was relevant then and it's relevant for us right here and now. God is still the righteous judge of all the earth. He's coming one day, and you know what? He's going to judge in righteousness. And when he comes, a fire shall devour before him, and it shall be tempestuous round about. And let me tell you, the judge of all the earth will do right. He will judge right. Our only hope and our only safety is in Jesus Christ. We are confiding in him. He is like a picture in the Old Testament of the ark. You know what? You go into the ark, you're safe from the storm. You outside that ark and that rain and that storm come, you can get drenched and drowned. If you're in Christ, you're safe from the wrath of God because Christ died for our sins. We put our faith in Him. He is our hope, our confidence, our help, our strength, our security. It's not based upon what we do. It's based upon what He has done for us Therefore, we will give him praise and glorify him. May we praise him all the days of our lives. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to take your psalm to heart, that we would apply it to our lives. Lord, that we would see your righteous judgment on earth even as it is in heaven. Help us not to get caught up in formalities and rituals and help us, O Lord, not to be the hypocrite. For we know you see our hearts, the thoughts and the intents. So we pray you order our steps that we might glorify you all the days of our lives for Christ's sake. Amen.